Our passage this morning comes from Exodus 32. I misspoke two weeks ago. I told, or maybe it was last two weeks ago, I said we will be going through the Psalms starting this week. We will start that in June. Doug and I met and we talked through it and we've been going through the Ten Commandments and we both agreed it would be good to finish with a few more key events from the life of Moses and then in the summer we'll pick up with the Psalms. And so Exodus 32 It's been a long time, and we've been in the Ten Commandments, but we haven't been through the life of Moses lately. But if you were paying attention to that song uh, a minute ago, you would have at least traced some of the life of Moses in the song, right? So you're reminded of of Pharaoh and the the Exodus. But what we're looking at this morning is kind of a shocking moment. So just to remind you of what's gone on, Moses was called at the burning bush to be the deliverer of God's people. And he was very... Hesitant, right? Very reticent to do so. But God really shaped him through the process. And in the process of delivering the Israelites out of Egypt, Moses is growing. And we're tracking along with Moses' life, a man who is growing closer and closer to God. And so remember that, that Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and, and asked him to let his people go. There were the ten plagues. The final plague was the death of the firstborn. And it was that plague that allowed Pharaoh, or prompted Pharaoh to say, let, my, you know, let him go, get him out. And, and then, of course, as they're fleeing, and they're plundering, they're taking, the Egyptians are giving them gold and silver and things. Pharaoh has a change of heart and pursues them, and crosses into the sea, and they've crossed on the dry land, and of course the Egyptians, Pharaoh and his soldiers, are killed, right, at the Red Sea. And so Moses is now on the other side, they've seen God, he goes before them in a pillar of smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night and guides them to where he had the burning bush moment, which is Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai. And there he is with maybe even up to 400,000 people. Some scholars wonder if there were even potentially other people groups that have come with them or not. We don't know for sure. But what we know is these are God's people and they're ready to receive the Ten Commandments. And that's what we've been studying for the last quite a few weeks. Let me recap all of what we've taught. Just kidding. Um, but now, what we find is Moses, after delivering the Ten Commandments, uh, actually God was the one delivering the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. Moses has gone back up the mountain. He does this a few times. And at this point, in chapter 32, he's been up there for 40 days and 40 nights. And the people become very um, impatient. And they were ready for him to return. And it's amazing about uh, just to watch this event because of the stark contrast between all the glorious things God has done for them and their response. But it's also amazing because if we read this, I think we'll see ourselves a little bit in this passage. So here's another thing that we haven't done in a while, long passages. I think the average length of our last ten sermons was maybe four verses or five verses. So... We're going to make up for lost time. Exodus 32. I'm going to read all the way through, I believe I'm going to read all the way through 20. And I say I believe because I'm going to preach from the whole chapter, but I'll stop at verse 20. Exodus 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make Gods, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, 
Take off the rings of gold that are in your ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. If this were a movie or a show, that's, you're, you're fading away at this greatly sad scene of partying. In fact, most scholars would say there was a lot of really bad kind of partying going on. I won't go into more details. And now you have, in verse 7, sort of a cut to a new scene. And it's God and Moses on the mountain. And God and the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation out of you. But Moses implored the Lord, his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring." as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised, I will give to you your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of, bringing on his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets where the work of God and the writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people, as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, and that refers to Moses most likely, It is not the sound of shouting for victory, or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. This is the word of the Lord. Let's cheers you up in that passage. Let's pray. Father, this is your word, and we are your people, and we take your word and we read it and we study it knowing that your Holy Spirit wrote these words. And we pray that your Spirit would show us your 
the wisdom and the beauty of the teaching in this passage, that we would cling to you, Father, as your children. In your name we pray. Amen. I had a conversation recently with a person who's a believer, but older um, than I am, but a, a friend, and he and I were just talking about the necessity to go to church. And he said, he said there's a new, a new sociological movement of people who are sort of re, rebuffing church. But they're still Christians, they just don't go to church anymore. And he, and he said, there's a great book you ought to read, sociological work, and he's going to send it to me. And it just opened my eyes to the fact that we, we, we begin to, for every idea we have, we begin to develop the reasons why they're okay. So the assumption I'm making is that there are Christians outside the church, but you, as a believer, really ought to worship in the community. God teaches that in the Scripture. But there's other thoughts that are floated around, and I'm noticing more than ever, people will tell me their ideas, and they'll just say it as if because they have this idea, it's good, right? Now, the pro- that, that's a problem, because what we would say is the Scriptures tell us what to believe, right? And so I just I encourage us as we look into this passage to recognize as weird and strange as this story at first sounds, we really do have a tendency, all of us, to want to fashion God into our own image. Not maybe as extreme as they seem to want to do there, although I think we'll find out that we do. And the reason I think we look at them as so archaic is because of how old this book really is, right? Have you ever heard someone say, I don't really follow the Bible so much anymore. It's so old, right? And it's similar to um, the same things that cause, I think, um, one bring up big topics, racism, or when you look down at other social classes, is it really is you saying, I've evolved past certain groups. And there is a tendency to think we've evolved as a race beyond the idiocy of these poor people. And so, when we read these passages, they have nothing to do with us anymore. And then you go, but wait, this is really strange because everything they're doing is what our culture is tempted to do and my own heart is tempted to do as well. That's my argument this morning. And what we're going to find is that through God's grace and mercy, even as we revolt, through His grace and mercy, He saves us from ourselves. There is grace in this passage. Did it seem like a harsh passage? How many of you are like, oh, there's that mean Old Testament God. He's not mean. He's gracious. And you're going to see that in this passage. If not, let's email later. Come to me. Come meet. We'll talk. So we're going to look, first of all, at the situation, God's response, and then the solution of the mediator. So the situation is, as you know by reading it and by hearing us talk about it, Moses has been gone a long time. Now, prior to this situation, right after the Ten Commandments, the people said to Moses, we don't want to hear God's voice anymore. Like, that was crazy. We want you to be the one that always relays God's message to us. So they set up for themselves this concept of a mediator, which God, of course, already had designed. But they wanted it for the wrong reason. They simply were afraid of God and wanted to have a person deliver God's message because that felt safe. And when that person went up on some mountain for so long, they became impatient. And listen to what they say in verse 1. Make us gods who shall go before us. The actual Hebrew there is Elohim, which is plural. But usually when it's used to refer to Yahweh, it means it's not plural like Trinity or multiple gods. It's more of a 
way to magnify who God is. But here, most scholars and interpreters think that they're sort of defaulting back to who they once were. Remember, they came up out of Egypt. They had spent their entire lives there in a, in a society that worshipped idols, right? In fact, the earrings is a throwback to that. Later on in, verse, in chapter 33, when they come through this entire ordeal and they repent, verse 6 says, Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. So they, they kind of had done this throwback to pagan idolatry in the absence of Moses through all of these or, um, ornaments. And that is, are the, those are the very things used by Aaron to make this calf. But what's interesting about this verse is when they say, make us gods to Aaron, they say, this man Moses, this fellow, most commentators say, this fellow, it's a very nasty reference to him. There's no fear, there's no worry, he's just, it's just, he's gone, he's left us in the lurch, this fellow who brought us up out of Egypt. Okay? But what's interesting is, they have no sense of God's involvement. Did you pick up on that in the reading? They don't say, this man who led us with God. They give God no, no involvement whatsoever. Even though there was a pillar of fire and a pillar of smoke, and even though God provided quail and manna and water from the rock, all these provisions, all they thought of was Moses was missing. This is the situation. And I think the reason I'm, I'm articulating it in this way is it's too tempting to say they broke the first commandment. So the first commandment is, thou shalt have no other gods before me. But the second commandment, if we'll go back to Exodus 20, says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath. That is the commandment they broke. And the significance of that being the broken commandment is, they were not making a calf to worship a cow. That wasn't their goal. That's, most of us think that's what they were doing, right? They must have wanted to worship cattle. But rather, they had already heard of this thing called the Ark of the Covenant. They already understood that God was going to bring this gold box and, and with poles that had cherubim, but God was going to be above this box. And so for them, I think it made re reasonable sense to say, okay, whatever that, Moses is gone, let's do a cow. And in, in Egypt, there was a god to bulls. That was a very common deity in the time. But they didn't think God was in the cow. They were hoping that God or the gods were above the cow. Right? And so they were still thinking they were sort of following that God that led them out of Egypt, just not, the, not exactly the way God wanted to be followed. That's what most of the commentators were, are saying is they weren't completely abandoning Yahweh, rather. They were trying to worship or follow Yahweh according to their own design. Right? And for them, that was this golden calf. And so, it, the, the question then is, what, who are the troublemakers and how do we relate to who, who are we supposed to relate to in this passage? And what you'll see is, first of all, Aaron is almost an anomaly. You know, is Aaron, and the question you have to ask is, is Aaron doing anything wrong? And of course he is, right? But God really blames the people. So Aaron is, is sinning, but it's, it's strange. I'm not even going to try to explain it. When you go through the whole passage, he doesn't seem to be the one blamed, but the people are blamed. I don't know if it was, he even says, and we didn't read it, but he tells Moses, it's these people. 
They came after me. They made me do this. He even makes the comment, it's kind of humorous, that he put the gold into the fire and out came a calf. I didn't do it. You, God did it. So Aaron's to blame. But really, it's the whole setting. Everybody had earrings. Everybody was in this new movement of whatever it was. Moses is up on the mountain. Joshua is near him. And the rest are going backwards to their pagan ways. But what's crazy about it is, I think they thought they were religious. Right? They weren't. They weren't saying, we're going back to Egypt. We're going to start a whole new religion. They thought they were being godly. And so, how does that relate to you and I? How comfortable are you with spending time with your God? Or are you, like many of us, many people, do you struggle with wanting someone else to do the interpretation for you? In chapter 20, they did not want to go straight to God. They wanted an interceder, Moses. But what you find is they really weren't after God at all. Why do I say that? If they were sincerely worried about Moses being dead and God being gone, I'm trying to think about how to word this, why did they never simply look up at Sinai and go, oh, there's the smoke, there's the fire? God's presence was with Moses that entire time, and they could see it. When you, it's interesting when you think about the way that it's written. It, if, I didn't, if you had no idea about this story, and I said, what do you think this setting was? You might have just said, I don't know, some African plain? I don't know, some distant field? The mountains. I mean, they're in a mountainous region. They're in an area where they know Sinai is right there, and they never look up at God. They've completely abandon him and all they want is a new intercessor someone to come along and give them the new message so where are we dangerously close to that is your church i mean here i'm preaching to church people is is this your salvation is this your only way of getting the message how about me our other pastors you've had or somebody you listen through so other media how are you getting the message of god Is it through the Holy Spirit illuminating the Scripture to you because you study the Scripture? Are you going to the Word and bringing your life before God and saying, Father, I need you to guide me? And are you developing that intimacy with the Father yourself? Is that your your testimony? My encouragement as we read this is to understand it's very easy and very tempting to allow others to become God for us. Okay? But also, we often allow ourselves to be swayed by people. What you'll find, I didn't get to the part about the judgment. You thought that was harsh. It gets really harsh later. And I can tell by the looks on everyone's face, they're like, this is all harsh. Later, God, they go, Moses takes a group of Levites and they go from gate to gate killing people, judging people. But what, common, what, what, what most scholars would agree is that what, what God is doing is showing them the actual instigators in the problem. There were actual people in their midst that were not following God. The rest were followers of God, but they were misled by these people. And so they were swayed. So when these people say, here, Israel, are your gods, that's not Aaron. That's the, the instigators trying to sway them. So first question, are you walking with the Lord and you have your own personal relationship with Christ, reading Scripture? But secondly, are you 
aware, at least theologically, to not be persuaded by such crazy theology. Right? That's what's happening. I mean, that's what's going on. If I or, or the elders or anybody come before you and start talking about crazy things, will you catch it? Or will you just go, that sounds good, and we kind of looked around, everyone's nodding, I'm in. That's how my vote went. Right? Everyone, I voted for that guy. Why? I don't know. I saw the guy next to me raise his hand, and we all voted. Okay. But we're going to move into a little bit harder stuff. That was difficult. We're going more difficult. God's response. So God is angry with what the people have done. Right? And so God tells Moses, um, your people have said this. Your people made a golden calf. Verse 8. They turned aside quickly. They've made this golden calf. They've worshipped it. They've sacrificed to it. And they've said, these are your gods. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and they're stiff-necked. Now therefore let me alone that at my wrath may burn hot against them. And I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. Do you hear what he's doing right there? He's angry. But he's sort of testing Moses. Remember, we're studying the life of Moses. And we're going to come back to Moses' response in a minute, but I want to draw your attention to his anger a few moments later. I'm turning the heat up for, on purpose. Verse 15, Then Moses turned and went down the mountain. I'll just paraphrase it. He has the tablets. He's going down. He comes to Joshua. Joshua's like, hey, I've been listening to this. Like, I guess there's a war going on. And Moses is like, no, it's not a war. It's a party. They're worshiping false gods. He didn't say it like that. And then he goes in and he sees it for himself. And he's so angry, he breaks the Ten Commandments, the, the tablets on the ground. And he admonishes the people. And the question is this. Do you like God being angry? Or do you prefer God being merciful? Because everybody in this room is going to answer, I want a merciful God, right? Schaefer says somewhere that you can't have either a just God or a merciful God, but he has to be both. Does that, you can't have a God who says, Moses, your people, our people, have made this golden calf. And to be fair, they spent 400 years in Egypt. Even though I just told them not to do it, it's kind of okay, but here's what I'm going to ask. After we're done with our business here, go down and remind them over and over of how to keep the law. Is that merciful? Why is that not merciful? We can't keep the law. See, I don't think God thought that when he and Moses were on the mountain that these people were going to follow those Ten Commandments perfectly. Because those people still need a mediator. They need someone to intercede for them. I want to remind you of a few things that they've gone through just to show you how bad what they did is. After the Ten Commandments were given, and it says in verse 18 of chapter 20, all the people, they saw the thunder, they saw the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. They were afraid and they trembled. And that's where they said to Moses, you, know, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. And then Moses delivers what we call what are called the civil laws and begins to show them as a society how the Ten Commandments will apply. And then in chapter 24, he reminds them, and here's what's going to happen. You're going to go into this promised land, flowing with milk and honey. And then they have what's called a covenant renewal. 
And here's the, here are the words of all the Israelites. They said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And then, Moses goes back up on the mountain, and what do they do? Almost immediately, somewhere within the 40-day period, they start worshiping an idol. Right? They start trying to worship God in their own image, and they've wandered away. But here's what's the, mo- the most fascinating part about this piece right here in the Covenant Renewal, chapter 24. As it says, after they've said they will do it, Moses says, and he sent young men, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it on the base, in the basin, and half the blood he threw against the altar. When you read that kind of thing, are you not tempted to think, see, that is disgusting, that's unsanitary, all sorts of disease, and more importantly, just weird? Or are you thinking, hopefully, what I'm thinking, or hopefully we're getting there, wow, we need blood. We, we just heard these Ten Commandments. We, we haven't done anything wrong, apparently. There's no confession of sin or anything. And you're telling me that blood has to be splashed on me? God is setting up the stage for a mediator. So we come back to our passage, and what he is doing and we're now moving to our final thought here, is in his anger, it's righteous anger, but he is showing that they have a need of a Savior. So here's Moses in verse 11. God has just, I don't want to say he's tempted Moses, but he's laid out a test. Hey, why don't we scrap them? Get rid of everyone. And we just start with you. What's what's wrong with that? I'm going to hold that question out there for just a minute. What's wrong with that? What would be so wrong? Moses marries somebody that's probably not a Hebrew. Maybe, I don't know how that would work because everyone's been smited. But they go off and have children. And and then he's like the new Abraham. That's really the idea. But Moses immediately says this in verse 11. Oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? God said, your people have sinned. Right? Why did he say that earlier, just a few verses earlier? Again, a few verses earlier, God has said in his anger, your people have sinned. Partly, he's doing that to show the futility of the Hebrew people saying, this man Moses, this fellow. Okay, So God is saying, okay, you want to play that game? Your people, Moses, have sinned. That, that's part of it. But most of the commentators I, I, I look to and I think are correct say, it's really God showing the strength of the mediator. He's really looking at Moses and saying, these are your people. Yes, I'm their God, and yes, I've been equally as involved, and it's a mystery to figure out where it's me and where it's you, but these are your people. Moses is betrothed to them. And listen in verse 11. Oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt? Why should the, and he gives this argument about the Egyptians, and then he says, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, referring to Christ. Moses is saying to God, on behalf of the people, and I'm answering the question I posed, these are your people. You love them. You can't just sever. This is not some idea we're carrying out. This is a promise you've made. 
And he's reminding God of that promise. A little bit later, and I've referred to this earlier, a little bit later Moses says, so Moses returned to the Lord, verse 31, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Moses is looking at God and in the face of being offered a new fresh start with his own kids instead of these stiff-necked people, he's saying, these are my people. In fact, I'm so married to these people that if you won't forgive their sin, then I'm not going either. That's pretty awesome. And that is just a small picture of what the true mediator says. Jesus says, I have betrothed you. And your Father sent me to you. God was not wanting to really smite these people. God was testing Moses, though he, they deserved to be killed. That's the tension. They really did deserve it, but God raised up Moses. See, it's critical that when you hear someone say, see how mean God is? What? God handpicked Moses as an infant, saves him from this evil Pharaoh, raises him in a house of a king to get educated and all the great things that might have come from that, but yet still has connection with his parents, so at least he knows something of Hebrew culture. He is so angry at what the Egyptian hurting the Hebrew that he murders the Egyptian, right? Then he thinks he's just done and goes off to Midian and lives a shepherd's life for 40 years. And God says, I'm going to show you what I've called you to do. Brings him to this burning bush and tells him, you are the Redeemer. And then Moses doesn't want to do it. I'm slow of speech or I don't have quite this. We'll send Aaron and go with you. God is preparing him for this moment. So to go, God's mean. God is testing Moses. God is revealing something. His mercy and his love. Yes, those people deserve to be killed for their sin. And you and I do as well. And I, don't, I have to be honest with you. When I struggle in sin, and I ask the Lord to forgive me, almost always I wouldn't say I deserve to die for it. Would you? Mostly I would just say, there, there I went again. Or you know, I could have been a little nicer there. Or shouldn't have said that. Right? If the gospel is alive, here would be my hope. That I would weep over my sin, but weep for joy over the love of my Savior. Jesus loves you. He's betrothed to you. And He has come to you, and He has said, you are mine. I am married to you. right? And I will go with you before I'll go back to the Father. Now, He didn't say it that way, but that's really what Moses is saying. And it's showing us the fact that we are united to Christ. And in John, we know that God the Father and God the Son are in perfect union. And so we are now hidden in Christ in the heavenlies. Is that your hope? Or are you dwelling like the people of Israel in your shame? What have we done? Are you dwelling there? Or are you living out of the beautiful mercy? What I love about the people of Israel, and we're going to see this, is they're showing us that we ourselves can both struggle in sin and yet God doesn't let go of us. Now, there are some who were smited because they were clearly instigators. And I've already mentioned those, right? But the rest were brought out. 
And they were loved and they were cherished. Is that how you see yourself? Now, it's 31 minutes in, 32 minutes in. I need to close. You're all thinking, what? Like 28 would have been nice. Um, I just want to draw out one character going forward. You know, who do you relate to? When you read a narrative, it's good to say, who am I supposed to be? I want to, it's kind of in vogue and, and probably right to say, I'm not going to be Moses. That's the Jesus character. However, I don't want to dismiss that too quickly because we're going to find Moses having intimacy with the Father that Jesus himself offers us. We'll talk about that in future weeks. I don't want you to think you're the bad guys that said, Aaron, make the gods who were then killed. I'm hoping none of us are those people. I think there's two characters that we vacillate between. The rest, who are swayed by bad teaching. We need to be on, you know, close to the Father that we may not be swayed by bad teaching. But there's this one guy. Did you notice this? Joshua? He's standing. I mean, there's a, he's, a, he's a fighter. I mean, Joshua likes to fight. And there's a battle, he thinks, going on in the camp. But he's so committed to Moses, whom he's probably thinking died too. I don't know. He's like, I haven't seen him in 30 days. Up on this mountain that he's going to wait. Gazing at the mountain, knowing that his, his, his mediator, I mean, his, the person he's attached to is up there. And that's his hope. So even while he's hearing those cries from the, the community, he knows where his heart lies. And he's waiting for Moses. Are we looking to Jesus? Or are we looking at our own flesh? Where are you dwelling? Where, do your, where does your mind go? Let's look to Jesus. And when you see your sin, run to him. That he loves you. That he died for you. That he's married to you. And in eternity, we will be with him forever. Seeing him face to face. Is that your hope? Let's pray. Father, there is so much richness in your word. When I first looked at this passage, I thought it was simple. And the more I studied it, the more complex it gets. And I'm sure my friends here think I've made it even more so. But Father, I pray through your spirit, through your grace, that we would see your gospel. Lord, more than Moses is Jesus. You love us more than he loved them. Lord, we cannot keep your law without your Spirit dwelling in us. And even our best efforts are filthy rags apart from you. My prayer is that we would cling to you and to not, not to our own reputation, not to how we feel, not to how things seem, but to the reality of the cross for our only hope. It's in your name we pray. Amen.